good morning. Good morning, Overlake. You are beautiful. You're a beautiful, beautiful church. So many great uh, people to be on the journey with as God's doing some great, great stuff in our midst. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout and you'll see that we are week three in this series. It's called Love Always. It's, I think this is in so many ways a foundational kind of that that, uh, hey, here's where we build from kind of a series. And certainly the truths that we're talking about as followers of Jesus, they're kind of bedrock, core truths. And, and so if you think about what it is that we are trying to go after as followers of Jesus, this series just kind of hones in on what that looks like. And so, you know, one of the things to think about is before we talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus, it always is important to look like to look at what his leadership is. So instead of Jesus' followership for a moment, let's take a look at what Jesus' leadership looks like. And so that's why you have a couple of verses right at the top of your outline. Uh, John 15, 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So he's speaking to his disciples and then by proxy through the years, you and I as his followers. And he says, here's my command. You're to love one another as I have loved you. So as consistently, as sacrificially, as unconditionally as Jesus has loved us, that's how we are to go after loving one another. Next uh, verse about leader, Jesus' leadership, uh, John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So not only is this command to love one another, as he has loved us, we're to love one another, but this is how the whole world is going to know that Jesus is real, that Jesus is love. This is, this is the billboard, if you will, for what it looks like to, to know God's love in a person of Jesus. It's how we love one another. It's how the world's going to know that we're Jesus' followers. And then this third verse, this is actually from the Apostle John, he's writing, and he says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. So he's talked a lot about love, but here's the opposite. It says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That's a big word right there. It's in the Bible, so it's okay, but that's a, that's a big word. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Okay, so take a look at all those three, those three verses together. And I would submit to you that if you're looking to get at the crux of the matter, what is it that Jesus' followership is about, I would submit that this is what Jesus' leadership looks like. That love is the thing. Not the main thing, not, not a primary thing. Love is the thing, the foundation for what we build all else on. And if you look at those three verses and, and how heavily they emphasize loving one another, it does beg the question, is it even possible to be a Jesus follower if you don't love? Like, is that even in the realm of possibility? And, and again, you're going to have to wrestle with that. But, but wherever you land on, on the answer to that issue, you have to understand how core, how pivotal, how foundational it is that we commit to being people of love. And if you're filling in the blanks, I just want to remind you here, as a Jesus follower, love is the deal. It is the big deal. It is the only deal. That, that, that love is what Jesus is about. He is the love of God incarnate. He came to be the revelation of God's heart of love to humanity. And so that's 
what it is that we want to be about as his followers. Love is God's substance, his presence, and his will for his followers. And so when you think about the kingdom of God, you just need to immediately recognize it's a kingdom of love. Right? That is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about a, a, the kingdom where love reigns. God reigns and God is love, so love reigns. And we want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, that's our prayer. That's what Jesus taught us to do. So we know in heaven love reigns. And so we need to be people who on earth we let love reign in our lives as well. Can I get an amen? Are you guys with me so far? Okay. I know we're jumping in the deep end, but we got a lot of work to do. Okay, so when you take it one step further, it's not just love, you know, the, your mom and dad, the people in your family, uh, your, bro- your brothers and sisters, cousins, the, the neighbors. Like, those things are all really true. But it's literally as you go through your life to be in a posture of love toward everyone you meet. So this is, this is true, uh, you know, no matter what you're talking about as far as like uh, crossing socioeconomic lines, crossing lines of ethnicity or race, uh, you know, uh, nationalities. Like doesn't matter what that looks like. We need to be in the posture of love. And there's a biblical reason why the church can embrace, should embrace this kind of diversity. And you'll be happy to know it's actually Biblical. This is what the Bible has to say about it from the very, very beginning. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. So when you look at that, you see that God's image is is communicated. It's broadcast in all of humanity, right? That God's image is wrapped up in a wonderful variety of skin tones. Uh, God's image is seen in every single person you will ever meet. In fact, do this for me real quick. Look around right now. Look around the room. Now I want you to say to your neighbor, you know, you look an awful lot like our father. Would you say, you look an awful lot like our father. You're a good-looking group, right? You're, You're beautifully reflecting Our Father. So this means that we treat one another, whoever it is that we meet, we treat one another with what I would call the inherent dignity due an image bearer of God. You might want to write that down. We treat every single person with the inherent dignity due an image bearer of God. And again, this might be new language. It might be a new way of coming at it. But we've talked about this again and again and again as a church family. This is the journey that God is taking us on. And a couple of weeks ago, we actually built a graphic and we wanted to communicate sort of the universal you that that we're talking about here. You are welcome here. You matter to us. You are loved. Right? And this is true universally. So we can honor and dignify and value everyone because God's original fingerprints of glory are all over them, regardless of of their life, regardless of their background, their education level, experience, any of that stuff. That is uh, the the original fingerprint. The thumbprints of God's glory are on every single image bearer of God. That's what's true about everyone you meet. What's also true about everyone you meet is that they're flawed. 
that they're, they're broken, that sin has caused them to limp. And, and that is true for everyone you meet as well. It goes back to original sin and actually a lot of other sins that aren't all that original. Uh, but original sin, right, uh, that's why you can recognize that sort of there's this inherent brokenness in everyone you meet as well, including the person you look at in the mirror. But here's what I want you to know. Sin doesn't show up until Genesis chapter 3, right? Original sin is actually not the deepest thing about someone. It's not the truest thing about someone. In chapter 1, original glory is. So original glory is the, the, the bedrock, right? That, that's the starting place. That's what's the deepest and truest and, and the, the most real thing about any other human being you will ever meet. It's the original glory. Yes, there's sin, but the original glory precedes it. Now, there's another reality here, and it's found in the call of God to Abram. So when God calls Abram, before he's changed his name to Abraham, he calls Abram, and he wants to give him a blessing and a nation, shows him a land to move to. But this is what God says to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And then look at this line. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. You might want to underline that line. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So not only does each life represent and reflect the image of God, not only does each person uh, matter to God, but God's desire is to bless each life. It's to bless each family in all the nations throughout all the earth. And so when Jesus arrives, he merely picks up this meta-narrative, the original and eternal plan of God to build a family of love that spans every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so you recognize, what is Jesus at work doing? Like, what is the work of the cross that Jesus accomplishes? It's the work of reconciliation. And primarily, we, we talk about this in terms of how he has reconciled us to God's love. He takes care of the sin problem that plagues us. He reconciles us to God, right? He re- removes the stain of sin from us. And so there's this beautiful reconciliation with a perfect and loving God. So that's beautiful. That's that vertical reconciliation. But what we don't think about a whole lot is the horizontal reconciliation that he also accomplishes. In other words, he removes the things that divide us as humans, the things that put barriers between ourselves and other people. Jesus wants to reconcile us horizontally as well. And so I want you to take a look at this passage from Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he says this. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he's just talking about those who are far away because of their sin or just their lostness, however. He said, Jesus brings us close to God's heart here. It's through the cross. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Amen. Let's talk about there for a moment. You might want to circle two groups. In, if you're taking notes, the two groups that the Apostle Paul's talking about is the Jewish community and the Gentile community. 
Jewish community, Gentile community. The Apostle Paul uh, is talking about them as two groups. And in, indeed, in the Jewish community, that was common knowledge. They would, they would sort of reference that sort of all the time. Um, if you recognize that the story of the scriptures, God chose a nation to birth a son to save the world. And so up through the Old Testament, the Jewish community, that they're the ones who, they were God's chosen. And so they, you know, everything's very Jewish community centric in all the languaging of the scriptures. And so that's why Paul says, this is one group, the Jewish community. And then he says, the other group is every other person on the planet, right? It's a big group. That's a big group. Small group here, big group, is all the other nations. And so, in fact, the word Gentile actually means peoples or nations. That, that it, the Gentiles are everybody else. So, so here's a group, and then here's a massive group. And what Paul says is Jesus brings those groups together. There's division between them, right? A fallen world, we create all kinds of barriers that prevent us from being, you know, with each other. And, and what Paul's saying is in Christ, there's this unity now, this reconciliation. So he has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, look at this, was to create in himself one new humanity. You want to circle that. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So when you sort of dig into this passage, you see that what Jesus has done through the cross, he's ended hostility toward God and toward one another because Jesus is our peace. And Jesus has made peace, right? He's the prince of peace, and he's brought peace. Now, the dividing wall. What is this, the dividing wall? Well, there was an actual dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem. There was this outer court where Gentiles could actually hang out. They could come and they could participate uh, as Gentiles in worship to God. But then there was a wall. And only Jewish, uh, the Jewish community was allowed in to the inner courts, and then, of course, the, the most, you know, the Holy of Holies was, was the most restricted there, uh, separated from the rest of, by a temple. Um, now, remember, on the crucifixion, Jesus, actually, the, when Jesus was crucified, the curtain tore in two from top to bottom that actually prevented people from getting into the Holy of Holies. God himself took care of that problem. So that was the reconciliation of God to man. But what Paul's saying is that wall that divided the Gentiles from the Jews, that wall has been torn down. The barrier between peoples is now removed because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And if you're filling in the blanks, that's what we need to note, that Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall between us between Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles and other Gentiles, between Gentiles of, of nations, between Gentiles of different races, that, that all of these dividing walls that we create in a fallen world, Jesus has destroyed those things. He, he has, in love, made one new humanity. Right? That's what he's going after. And it's because of Jesus that we get to love each other, we get to honor each other, we get to pray for each other, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. It's with Jesus at the center. We talked about this last week. Holding all things together. Friends, this is why, and some of you know this verse by heart, this is why the Apostle Paul says that uh, in Christ there is neither 
Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what has been accomplished by Christ's love poured out on the cross of Calvary. Come, somebody better say, come on, come on. That's just so beautiful right there. Okay. If you guys want to cheer, if you want to say amen, if you want to say come on, I do want to give you permission to do that. It's super lonely up here sometimes. So I just, I do every once in a while, I just love like, okay, we're with you, you know. What you need to know is that we see a bit of God when we look into the eyes of one another. When we befriend one another, when we listen to one another and hear the mind of one another, when we allow ourselves to step out of our own little bubble and to build bridges of relationship to another island that's different from our own, we learn more about God. And so that's why we declare, and we've done this for many, many years, that diversity is beautiful and God's church has to be a church that embraces diversity because it's a beautiful thing. That's what heaven's going to be like. That's what God's kingdom's like. Therefore, that's what God's church must be like. And we talk about diversity of all kinds. So we're talking about intergenerational diversity, diversity of age. We're talking about diversity, socioeconomic diversity, right? Uh, diversity there. We're talking about diversity, racial diversity. That however you want to talk about diversity, we want to embrace. Why? Because we recognize that's what God's kingdom's like. And we pray your kingdom, what? Come, that your will be done here on earth as it already is in heaven. So that's why, if you're looking at the title of today's message, that's why the, the message is called Kingdom Now. We, we pray it and we embrace it and we lean into his kingdom now. Okay, so at this point in the message, a lot of what I've said, I mean, it might be slightly challenging, but most of you, if you've been on the journey with us at Overlake for some time, most of what I've said is you've already heard in some form or another, this doesn't sound like especially new or especially challenging, and you're kind of a positive person toward love already, so you're like, oh, thank you, Mike, I appreciate it. Um, but it's not like, it's not getting, moving you anywhere, right? Like, you're, you're already there. So here's what I need to say, and I, over like, I love you so much. I've been praying over this message for literally a month. I feel like God gave it about a month ago to me, and I've just been praying over it. So I'm actually going to tell you a story, and it's going to be challenging for many of us. And it'll be a little uncomfortable, too. And the story, by the way, I, I will let you know, it's a, we're gonna, it's, a, it's, a, it's a true story, but it does require a certain maturity. And so I want to give people a little bit of uh, coaching here. I, I really, I just, I love you, Overlake. I want you to come with me. I want to be a shepherd. I want to lead us a little bit. But here's the deal. If you're watching online and you've got like four screens open, shut them all, track with me for a few minutes, okay? And if you're here and you're sleeping uh, or you're angry birds or whatever it is you might be doing, like shut it down, like uh, rouse yourself. Let's, let's be together on this. And if you're here and you, um, if you have, uh, if you're in the room and you're maybe sixth grade and up, I think this is a perfect conversation to have. I think it's very appropriate. But if you're maybe elementary school, if you're here with your elementary school kiddo, this might be a good time to take a bathroom break. Because what I talk about, it's, it's going to be a little uncomfortable for us. Uh, it, you might hear it. It might cause some discomfort as, as you're hearing it. I promise you, as I've been prepping this message, it's caused discomfort in me as I've been thinking about delivering this message. And, and the reason why I'm going to go ahead and take this risk is because, honestly, sometimes love is uncomfortable, and love requires us to get uncomfortable, and so 
That's why I'm bringing this challenge. And again, you remember a few weeks ago that we talked about how the scripture says that anybody who loves is a child of God. And anybody who does not love does not know God. So that's the the starting place for the story, the the recognition that we need to be people of love. Why? Because anyone who loves is a child of God. Like that's what we are about as followers of Jesus. Okay, so I've noticed a couple of families leave, and I just want you guys to know I honor you for that. But let me tell you a story. Recently, I was in Montgomery, Alabama with Pastor Dan for the opening of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And while I was there, I read this story of a lynching. A black man was jailed. He was accused with no evidence. And word got around town that a mob was planning to lynch him on a Friday afternoon. It was in the newspaper. The governor said that there was nothing he could do to stop it. I actually read the article, and that was the headline. Governor says there's nothing I can do. And on a Friday afternoon, the mob broke into the jail. They terrorized and humiliated this man, degraded him, dragged him through the town, strung him up in a tree, riddled his body with bullets, burned his corpse, clipped parts of his body off, and sold them as souvenirs. The article included a picture of the festival crowd picnicking in front of the scene. The crowd of mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, babies and strollers, celebrating injustice. And friends, I want to clarify, this was not frontier justice. There were courts of law available. He was denied any kind of trial, let alone a fair trial. The U.S. Constitution calls for states to protect its citizens, but he was denied protection. The governor said there was nothing he could do, but the governor had all the power. He could have done all sorts of things. He could have moved the prisoner. He could have sent in state troopers to protect. He could have stood beside the accused and said, this will not happen. He could have done 10,000 things to administer justice, but he didn't. He washed his hands and pretended he was powerless. And because he pretended he was powerless, he was, in effect, powerless. And a black man was lynched. A black community was terrorized. And the governor, who was white, And the fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in the festival crowd, also white, went to church the next Sunday morning and sang songs to God. They thought God was cool with it. They were convinced that white skin was superior to black skin, and they thought God was cool with that. They thought God was cool with their injustice. They thought God was okay with the hatred in their heart. You see, they didn't recognize what we've been talking about this entire series, that if you love, you're a child of God. But if you do not love, you don't know God. And they didn't see the tears in Jesus' eyes as he watched them perform terror. As they rationalized murder, they didn't realize the demons were picnicking with them that day. And I wish I could tell you that this was a one-time solitary event. But it wasn't. It happened again and again and again. Not dozens of times, friends, not hundreds of times, thousands of times. Thousands of times black communities terrorized. Thousands of acts of horror committed against men and women of color. 
thousands of atrocities committed by churchgoers who pretended that God was cool with it, and thousands and thousands of white people who, in power who said exactly what the governor said, there's nothing I can do. When I was at the memorial for justice and peace, I was emotionally affected. My heart was hurting. Visually, it's compelling. It's beautiful. It's not vulgar at all, but it's haunting in all of its restraint. I discovered that my relatives have lived in some of the same counties and states where these lynchings took place. And I read so many stories. It's all documented. Thousands of stories. I'll only share a couple. A black construction worker was lynched at Camp Landing, Florida in 1941 for insisting that a white co-worker return his shovel. Elizabeth Lawrence lynched in Birmingham, Alabama in 1933 for reprimanding white children who threw rocks at her. Robert Mallard, a prosperous farmer, was lynched near Lyons, Georgia in 1948 for voting. Those were their crimes. Others had no crime at all. Mary T- or Rachel Moore rather, was lynched in 1921 in Rankin County, Mississippi by a mob searching for her son-in-law. Lynching by proximity. Mary Turner was lynched with her unborn child at Folsom Bridge in the Brooks Loundis County line in Georgia in 1918 for complaining about the recent lynching of her husband, Hayes Turner. And Bally Crutchfield was lynched in Rome, Tennessee in 1901 by a mob searching for her brother. Do you see why love is so essential? Do you see why a religious community devoid of love is so frightening? Love is the thing. Love is the value. Love is the deal. That's the foundation. If we miss that, we're missing everything. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, didn't that stuff happen a long time ago? It was during my parents, uh, you know, maybe my grandparents' time. Uh, We didn't do it, right? That stuff's not happening now. People aren't denied due process of law and executed without trial anymore because of their skin color, right? Well, on average, two unarmed black men are killed every week by law enforcement. Many of them, for incidents like driving with a taillight out or selling cigarettes illegally, or being 12 years old and playing with a fake gun in a park. None of which are capital crimes, yet each of these are dealt capital punishment. Each of these examples of a state executing its own citizens without due process or trial. And this history lesson I've given you, it offers greater insight into why a black community that was terrorized thousands of times views these incidents in current events differently than other ethnic communities might. The associations that come to mind feel an awful lot like modern-day lynchings. This history lesson might bring a little more understanding to many of us why black athletes are exploring how to peacefully protest during the national anthem when they feel they're still under a system that withholds justice and equality from their brothers and sisters. A system that still murders a human being made in the image of God with impunity, either explicitly or implicitly because of that person's skin. You might uh, might see a bit more clearly why some on the receiving end of racism are so frustrated 
with people who wash their hands and say there's nothing I can do when we've been given so much power and privilege, when our voices have so much weight and gravity, where the white culture has largely crafted the rules of the game in its own favor and denied access to so many in the black and brown community. And by the way, friends, I hope you don't hear this as a rant against the police officers. Uh, I know so many officers, and I have friends personally on the force, and the men and women that I know, they honestly seek to serve and to protect well. They are the first to call for greater training and better non-lethal options. They are the first to want positive change because they hate it when all cops are made to look bad. And I understand that. And in Montgomery, I was reading story after story. How the memorial is set up is there are these large monoliths. Each monolith is representing a county. And on each monolith, representing each county, there are names inscribed of the individuals who were lynched in these counties. Walking by county after county after county, implicated of murder in the beautiful America that I love and I call home. I was emotional. And I looked ahead of me and I saw a dignified middle-aged African-American woman. She had tears streaming down her face. And a white man came alongside her and I'm guessing it was her husband or or a good friend because at first he just held her hand and then he hugged her. And as he hugged her, she began to sob and he began to sob and they just stood there silently weeping together. And I began to cry as well because I wanted to hug her too. I wanted to say to her, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that this is our story. I'm sorry that this is our collective history. I'm sorry that my white ancestors profited on the labor and repression, the thievery and injustice enacted against your ancestors. I'm sorry that I've prevented, or I've pretended that the system is now suddenly fair or that we can ever have real justice or equality without facing the sins of our past, confessing the sins of our past, and repenting of the sins of our past, traveling in a new direction together. And so, friends, I I just found a quiet place to cry and to begin to cry out to God. And as I cried out to God, in my mind's eye, I I was looking through my tears at the face of Jesus, and I saw tears in his eyes as well. Because I saw him on another Friday afternoon. I saw him in my mind's eye beaten and bloodied. I saw him whipped and scorned. I saw him denied justice and murdered by a mob of people who were also certain that they were on God's side. While another man with all sorts of power to do the right thing washed his hands and said, there's nothing I can do. And then it hit me. My Jesus was lynched. Our beautiful, innocent Jesus was lynched. He was not hanged. He was not justly tried and found guilty. He was not executed. He was lynched. It was a demon-inspired, maniac mob hatchet job, and I was there. I was a part of the crowd. I was the one yelling, crucify. I was the one washing my hands. I was there listening to the frenzy of the crowd intensify as the blood flowed from the lashes on his back. I heard the jeers of the crowd swell as they degraded him with the crown of thorns, and I was horrified to hear my own voice among them. So I've spent some time wrestling that day, and I've been wrestling fairly consistently ever since. 
I've been wrestling with my ignorance as a white male of how my experience in this country is not universal. I've been wrestling with my ignorance of how I can appropriately raise my black son and my white son to have a vibrant future in a country that does not view them both through the same lens. And I've been wrestling mostly with how to use the platform I do have and the voice that I have been given. Not only to be an advocate for justice and peace, but mostly to be an advocate of love. To build a community that is serious about loving radically and outlandishly and consistently and embracing diversity and reconciliation as the practical outworking of love. But one thing I do know, I don't ever want to hear myself say what the governor said, what Pilate said, the words, there's nothing I can do. That I call out as a lie from the pit of hell, as a proclamation from the enemy of God, and I will not utter his putrid lies any longer. And Overlake, I, I tell you this all the time, you're a beautiful church. We already do much, but friends, there is more we can go after when it comes to loving well, when it comes to inviting well and embracing well, when it comes to believing in a hope and a future for all our sons and daughters, regardless of race or background or country of origin. And friends, this is why this series is so important. This is why love has to be foundational, that we go after this reality, that we are a church that loves, and we're a church that cares, and we're a church that embraces God's kingdom now. So we never want to like drop a bomb without giving people an opportunity to work it out. And that's probably not the right metaphor, but uh, the idea is I know it's heavy and I know it landed hard. And so I just, I want you to know that we've got some next steps to, to process with. And, and so uh, one of the things you'll notice is in the handout and it's on the, it's on your card as well. It's another continuing the conversation. We've hosted six or seven of these so far. Uh, this one is about building beloved community that values diversity. And so it's, it's sort of an outworking. I would actually call the event, it's, it's coming up on the 30th, I would call it a, a workshop of how we do exactly this, how we grow in love, how we value diversity, recognizing that there'll be, uh, there'll be different ethnicities, different races, different opinions, different political stripes, and yet the call is not to convince or change, the call is to love. 
And so the outworking of, of what that looks like practically as followers of Jesus and this beloved community idea, it started in uh, my dear friend, one of our elders, James Whitfield's heart, and, uh, and Pastor Josh and Pat and I have been walking a road of trying to, what does it look like for us to workshop this and work it out in practice? So I'd love to invite you to come. You can check that box on the card. If you're interested in hearing a, a little bit more about this topic and about the hard work of love in our country today, um, what I'd love to do is send you a TED Talk. And it's, it's a, a, a really interesting 17-minute investment you can make that will educate you around this issue. It's from a guy named Brian Stevenson. Brian is a phenomenal Jesus follower who was mentored by Tony Campolo. He's given his life to serving the impoverished in the Deep South. And like I said, if it'd be an easy way to begin uh, your own growth and education. So if you just want to write the word TED down on the card, we'll make sure you get that email. I know that there are a handful of you who might have been stirred up today by my words, but maybe not in a good way, not in a way that you feel propelled forward. In fact, uh, some of you might feel a little agitated today that I brought up a past that makes us all feel uncomfortable or that I got political even though I haven't talked about right or left. I've been talking about right and wrong. Amen. But I want you to know, if that's you, that I, I love you. I love you, and not only do I love you, I am you in so many ways. That I was probably sitting exactly where you sit about a decade ago before the adoption of my son that really opened my eyes to all sorts of things, a paradigm that I just did not see. So I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that I'd be happy to sit with you, make time to process some of this stuff with you, but I do have a request, and my request would be if you'd like to schedule a time to process, I'd love to have you watch that Brian Stevenson talk first. It'll just help educate you. It'll help give you some framework, some language that we can begin to dialogue about. So, so that's my ask. You're also welcome to write me an email, and you always are welcome to write me a note on the card if you'd like to. I do have a request. If you're courageous enough to write me a note on the card, be courageous enough to put your name on it. Uh, anonymous cards will be filed in the appropriate receptacle, okay? So I just, I want you to know that. Hey, friends, the call is to love, and the, and the call is to sit in this, and you don't have to agree with me, but my commitment is I'm going to love you, and I can't love the anonymous, right? When we're anonymous sometimes, it allows us to say things far more hatefully than we would if we put our name on the card. So that's my challenge, that you would do that. If some of you are here and you feel stirred up, but you'd like to learn more, you feel stirred up, you'd like to be educated more, you'd like to dive in more, I, I have two books I'd love to recommend. One is Brian Stevenson's book. It's called Just Mercy. And Brian Stevenson is, he, like I said, he's an a, a amazing guy. He's committed his whole life. And then the second book is called Waking Up White. This was referred to me by my buddy James Whitfield. And uh, it's, it's an interesting way to kind of... Um, I'd say expose the paradigms that most of us don't see, many of us don't see, don't experience on a daily basis. So I'd, I'd recommend those to you. I'm going to close by recalling Abram's blessing that God said to Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you famous. And then through you, I am going to bless 
every family on the earth. And when it comes to participating in the kingdom now, we are invited to being a part of that blessing, blessing every family on the earth. And when I think like that, I think there's no way one person can bless every family on the earth. I think there's no way one church even can bless every family on the earth. And, and then I realize that what Jesus calls us to do is that we would just bless one family on the earth. Amen. That we would just bless another family on the earth. That we would just wade in proximity and begin to love. Love those that are around us naturally, those who are like us and like-minded, and then step out of that comfort zone and love those who aren't like us and who might think differently than we do and have differences of opinion, that kind of a thing. So that's the call, right? We want to do that. And we know that one person can't do it, one church can't do it. Jesus, however, he can and he will. Because I've read to the end of the book, and I know what it looks like there. Amen. I know what the kingdom looks like. And that's why I've placed these words on the very bottom of your, of your outline. Revelation 7, 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in our mind's eye, we see what that verse describes, your kingdom, the vast multitude before the throne. And in that multitude, we recognize that there are every, every skin tone, every ethnicity, every race, every nation, every tongue. We recognize the incredible and beautiful tapestry of diversity that is your kingdom come. Amen. And we want it now. Amen. We want to walk a road where we lean in and we press in and we seek to love and to care. We seek to honor and dignify Amen. the inherent dignity due every single human because they are an image bearer of God. And so we ask for your help, Lord. We ask for your help that you would, that you would carry us. If, if we're here today and we're hurting for any reason whatsoever, my prayer is that you would just wrap us in your arms of love right now. That you would again communicate your patient, your unconditional, and your everlasting love for each one of us. And then help us to take next steps courageously that we might actually be a part of following you and bringing your kingdom come. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.